Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show... Science, death and tech in the world of James Bond with Catherine Harkup and her new book, Super Spy Science. Catherine Harkup writes and gives regular public talks on the disgusting and dangerous side of science. Her first book was the international bestseller A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie which was shortlisted for a Mystery Readers International Macavity Award and a BMA Book Award. She has also written Making the Monster, The Science of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and Death by Shakespeare, Snake Bites, Stabbings and Broken Hearts. And today we're going to talk about Catherine's latest book, which is Super Spy Science, Science, Death and Tech in the World of James Bond. Catherine, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for inviting me back. It's good to be here. Let's talk about, first of all, the obvious question, why James Bond then? Specifically, what appeals to you about him? I think the franchise as a whole, it's just, it's good entertainment. If you see a Bond film on TV, you sit down and you know you're going to have a good time for a couple of hours. And for me, with my background in sort of, you know, looking into death and killing people, there's a heck of a lot of that in James Bond. He seems to escape death pretty much in every adventure, if not several times in every adventure. And lots of people die in very unusual and varied ways all around him. So it seemed like absolutely my sort of cup of tea for the next book. It's good, solid entertainment. And it's bizarre because you pretty much know what you're going to get from every film. There have been 25 now. We know what's coming up, except that the producers and the team behind it managed to reinvent this. It's well-established. It's full of tropes. There will be a car chase. There will be a helicopter. James Bond will escape death. There will be a villain trying to take over the world or, or close to it. And yet we still go back and watch it again and again because they reinvent it in very creative ways. So what we'll do is we'll... What you do in the book is you go through every film and you take a aspect of that film, usually a you know a scientific aspect, obviously, from that film and, and examine that a bit more closely. But also that leads to other examples of the similar thing from the other films. And we'll, we'll do the same thing. So mm-hmm. what we'll do, first of all, is let's talk about Rosa Klebb's shoe <laughs> from, from Russia With Love. 
Absolutely. Rosa Klebshoe. It's awesome. Everyone remembers Rosa Klebshoe. Even if you can't remember the rest of the film, I swear you'll remember that shoe and uh, it being uh, kicked towards Bond and him trying desperately to avoid it and pin Rosa Kleb to a wall with a chair so that he's out of reach. So it's it's a classic gadget, as it were, but it's in the hand of the baddies. So this leads to a discussion of poison, something we've talked about on this show before. But um, yeah, so what? how successful would poison on the end of a spiked shoe work? And indeed, this is something where there is sort of an example of it in the real world, in London even. Yeah, sort of. So it has all kinds of, it's close enough to reality that people, when they see it on screen, it's, you know, it's not laugh out loud funny, it's credible. People have been putting poison on the tips of arrows since, you know, humans have been making arrows pretty much. And adding a poison to an already potentially dangerous weapon, that's nothing new. Putting that weapon inside a shoe is kind of creative, but I believe that that has been done in the spy world before. I'm I'm not sure how true that is. The idea that this particular poison on the end of Rosa Klebb's shoe, we're told in the film, it's demonstrated in the film, that it kills someone in 12 seconds. A poor henchman gets a knife in the back of his shin and uh, that's it. He's on the floor 12 seconds later. He's probably not actually dead at that point because that would be an extraordinarily fast-acting poison. But considering absolutely no one is going to help him, he might as well be dead. So fast-acting poisons, in the book, we're told that it's tetrodotoxin. The actual poison itself isn't mentioned in the film, but in the books, we're told that it's tetrodotoxin, which is the toxin that occurs in many animals, most notably the puffer fish. So those little fish that puff up really big and they're covered in little spiky things. Uh, They have tetrodotoxin in their skin to deter animals from eating them, basically. And it stops your nerves working. So you end up with all of your muscles paralyzed and you're unable to breathe. So it's a a pretty rapid death at that point. Um, And introducing it into the bloodstream, as it would be on the end of a knife shoe, would be a very effective way of delivering that poison all over the body so it could take effect as quickly as possible. So in the realms of credibility, I would say that that particular gadget, that particular weapon and that particular death, it rates pretty well, especially compared to a few others. We should mention the Markov, the um, the Bulgarian dissident who this really happened to. Yeah, so Georgi Markov was living in London. He had left uh, Bulgaria uh, where the regime at the time, so this was in the 1970s, the regime in Bulgaria uh, he was not a fan of it, and he did broadcasts uh, across Europe telling uh, a few truths about this particular regime. And he was going to work one day across Waterloo Bridge, and he felt a sting in the back of his leg. He turned round, a man dropped an umbrella, apologised, picked up the umbrella, crossed the road and disappeared, never to be seen again. And three days later, Georgi Markov was dead because whatever had been injected into him in the back of his leg, it was actually a tiny little pellet that had two holes drilled into it. And where the two holes met, it formed a little cavity, tiny, tiny cavity that was filled with ricin, uh, not tetrodotoxin, uh, ricin, a, a different poison, but just, well, very effective. As I say, three days later, Georgi Markov was very much dead and um, did not have, well, he did not have a nice death. Uh, ricin is a particularly nasty way to go. 
only had had a, a room service trolley with him at the bus stop, maybe it would have fared a bit better. So one of the tropes of James Bond is this idea of the villain, the supervillain gets James Bond, he finally gets him, and you know, rather than just sticking a bullet in his head, mm-hmm. will rig up some elaborate contraption and then set it up and explain how it's going to work and then leave the room and not even hang around to, to watch Bond inevitably escape from it. Uh, the classic one of this is um, Goldfinger's um, Industrial mm-hmm. Laser. And there's lots of lasers across the Bond franchise. Always bad. Tell us how Bond gets lasers wrong. Well, again, it's not that wrong um, for the purposes of cinema. So it all started with Goldfinger. That was the first laser uh, possibly that had been seen on a cinema screen ever because lasers were very, very new technology. They'd only been invented around 1960. So pretty much no one outside of a research lab would have known anything about them, what they looked like, what they did, not a job. So the film has to give Auric Goldfinger some lines of dialogue to explain what is going to happen to Bond, who's strapped to this gold table with this laser beam slowly advancing towards his nether regions. I think most people in the audience pretty much instantly get the idea because they can see the gold being cut up and sparks. They know it's not going to be good. So these lasers in 1964, when the film was released, simply weren't powerful enough to cut through metal. Those lasers were just a little way off. They weren't quite ready for the film. Also, metal cutting lasers aren't red. They're actually infrared, which we can't see with our eyes. But to see an, well, not see an invisible beam advancing towards Sean Connery would make no sense. So, of course, they put in this red light so that the audience can understand what the hell is going on in this scenario. So, James Bond actually didn't have anything to worry about from Auric Goldfinger because that's a laser pointer, that's not going to do him any damage. Uh, Sean Connery had something to worry about because uh, there was a prop guy underneath the table with a blowtorch melting out a line of solder to give the impression of this cutting the metal. And of course, he's under the table. He can't see where Sean Connery starts and where Sean Connery stops. So he's waiting for a line of dialogue, which, of course, Auric Goldfinger spins out as long as possible because he's the bad guy. And apparently uh, things did get a bit warm for him. But this is such an iconic scene. that I think it is possibly the most iconic scene from the whole franchise. Uh, lasers have been added to pretty, you know, cars, watches. All, they've been shot into space and threatened submarines in the hands of Blofeld. They've been all over the place and they have become synonymous with spies and particularly the James Bond series. But it's fantastic because it is, this is cutting edge technology, quite literally, and it looks super modern. But because the audience have had this explained to them in 1964, we all know what's possible. We don't need the explanation repeated. So it's kind of a, a familiar yet technologically advanced science. It, it's a brilliant choice for this particular franchise. Moonraker is one of the films which, and I'm afraid we're going to talk about Moonraker a few times because it's the best one and I will not brook any argument about this. It's got oh, space, it's okay, got Roger okay. Moore, best Fighting Bond. talk. It's got Jaws, it's got space shuttles. I mean, what more could you possibly want? And um, Moonraker is obviously not the only culprit in this sort of, because obviously it was a rip-off of Star Wars. You know, obviously they, they, of they rushed out 
Moonraker because Star Wars was a massive hit. And obviously a film like Star Wars is one of those films where Moonraker also does, which is lasers in space as laser blasters, like a gun mm-hmm. that fires short little beams of lasers. And again, this is just, just not realistic. No, it's nonsense because the vacuum of space, which is kind of important for the whole setup in Moonraker and Star Wars and the rest of it, it is a vacuum. There is no stuff out there and you can't see light unless it hits something. But if there's nothing there, how do you see these beams of light that are being fired towards the bad guys and the good guys? But of course, from a cinematic point of view, it would make no sense if you just saw dots appearing on people and you couldn't see the line back to where it had originated. It would be so difficult to follow what is already a chaotic space fight. So obviously you have to use artistic license, which is fair enough because you don't need your audience sitting in the dark going, what the hell is going on? They need to understand it. Something else that every Bond villain also has to have, again, I'll just quickly get in a mention that Moonraker has one of the very best ones because it's in space, is an evil lair. And and actually, realistically, the best one ever is the one that you talk about in this book, which is um, You Only Live Twice and the the hollowed-out volcano of Blofeld. So tell us something particularly about this one, whether or not... I can't believe I'm going to ask you this question. <laughs> Is it possible to hollow out a volcano and build a lair in it? I guess it is, but you've got to choose your volcano carefully. Me, personally, whoever, anyone who sees that film and that set designed by Ken Adams will be desperate for, I want one of those. That looks amazing. Please, with the monorail and the retractable roof as well, Thank you very much. So I, you know, it looks fantastic, but I would definitely want an extinct volcano. So a volcano that has not erupted in the entirety of human history, because volcanoes are dangerous things and they are wildly unpredictable. Um, the best scientists really struggle to predict with any accuracy when a volcano might erupt. So from a villain's point of view, it's fantastic if you have a semi-active volcano because you've got this inbuilt self-destruct mechanism just in case Bond and a load of ninjas turn up trying to stop your plans. But having control over that is quite difficult. I wouldn't want my volcano to self-destruct whilst I was in it. And like I say, it would be difficult to predict. Even if it's not terribly active, it's still going to be quite warm in there which is great for sort of generating your own heat and power. I'm I'm sure Blofeld is never going to suffer from a cold shower all the time he's living inside his volcano. But there's also going to be the release of toxic gases, mostly sulfur-based. And those sort of sulfur gases, once they get into the air, they can turn into sulfuric acid that's going to eat through your monorail mechanism and your retractable roof. All of that shiny steel is going to rust over pretty quickly. And your minions are going to be very sick very quickly. The turnover for minions in this industry must be very high. So on the face of it, it looks amazing. It sounds great, but it's massively impractical. But practicality and James Bond never really have met. So I don't think that's necessarily a problem for the series. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Catherine Harkup and we're talking about her new book, Super Spy Science, Science, Death and Tech in the World of James Bond. And something a bit low tech, actually, Catherine, start off the second half. And I want to talk about animals in the James Bond franchise. Um, mm-hmm. You highlight particularly the, um, the excellent bit of Live and Let Die where Roger Moore escapes by jumping <laughs> over the um jumping over the back of some crocodiles which is ridiculous but it turns out that was actually done that was real yes this is something that genuinely uh staggers me in every bond film the stunts i mean the stunts are brilliant to start off with but you know that someone maybe not the star himself but someone is up there or in amongst the crocodiles doing that very thing they don't go in for a lot of CGI and trickery and stuff. Someone does it for else, And that is impressive, to say the least. When it comes to crocodiles, the filmmakers came across this crocodile farm and instantly wrote in various scenes based around it because it was just too awesome and they couldn't not film there. And they also had this particular crocodile farm was owned by a guy called Ross Kananga which was such a fantastic name that they changed the name of their villain to Dr. Kananga in his honour. And so they, they've got this brilliant setting. They decide to put Roger Moore, Roger Moore's Bond, on this little island surrounded by concentric circles of chicken and uh, crocodiles, hungry crocodiles, that are slowly advancing towards him and he's running out of chicken. So they've got the scenario, but they genuinely didn't know how to get him out of this. 
they liked setting themselves these problems because, well, this kind of forced their creativity. So they got chatting about different ways to get him out of this. And the owner of the crocodile farm, Ross Kananga, said, well, if it was me, I would just run across the backs of the crocodiles. And they went, yeah, all right, then go on. So he did six times, not just once to get it on camera, six times to get it absolutely right. The first time he actually slipped on the crocodiles because I imagine they're quite slippery because they're wet. Uh, so they had to do a retake and Roger Moore suggested, why don't you put some running cleats on? So he got a bit more grip. And every time Ross Kananga runs over these crocodiles, the crocodiles are learning. They know that a human being is about to come across their backs and they're quite hungry. They haven't had very much chicken. And so they're thinking they start snapping and they even caught Kananga's heels, apparently on one take. Uh, yeah, it got very scary and they decided that the sixth take, that was enough. They weren't going to risk a seventh. So, yeah, it is very impressive because crocodiles are genuinely dangerous animals. They do not make good pets, whether you're a Bond villain or not. They have an extremely powerful bite. They're much faster moving than you might think. And they genuinely do see humans as potential food. So although they would make great guard pets for your secret drugs lab in the middle of the swamp, I would worry if I was an employee in that particular drugs lab, because I'm pretty sure the crocodiles don't know the difference between a British agent and the guys making the drugs. That is pretty unusual, though, for this franchise, because it does turn out that, well, let's see, tarantulas, snakes, Komodo dragons, sharks even, eels, generally are piranhas, as another example, <laughs> um, generally aren't as dangerous as we think they are. No, the crocodiles, they are the exception. And even with the spiders, yes, there are genuinely dangerous uh, species of spiders. The one you see in the film is not one of those spiders. It might give you a nasty rash. You could have a, quite a nasty reaction to it, but it is, it is not going to kill you. That does not stop many people being quite justifiably terrified of spiders, including Sean Connery, who wouldn't go anywhere near this tarantula that they had press ganged into appearing in this film. So you can actually see uh, in the final, in Dr. No, in the final take, there's a sheet of glass between him and the tarantula. And he's looking, he's probably not doing much acting when he looks terrified at this spider. But yes, generally speaking, the animals are of a less dangerous variety. Sharks are not as dangerous as you might think. If sharks genuinely saw humans as food, there'd be a lot less humans around. There'd be many more fatal shark attacks. Mostly the few, very few that occur every year. It's mostly sharks wondering what the hell is in the water with them and giving an exploratory bite. The unfortunate thing is that sharks have, well, especially great white sharks, they have a very impressive bite force and they have an awful lot of very sharp teeth. So even a small bite or a bit of a nibble to see what it is can have some quite devastating injuries on the victim. But generally speaking, sharks, they're not as dangerous to humans. They also don't make great pets. So if you're thinking of setting up your villain's lair, I would advise against the shark pool. Just staying with um, Live and Let Die for a moment. Um, later in the book, you talk about, um, in reference to the film, Die Another Day, which as it happens is the only one of this entire franchise that I've never seen. 
but also in Goldfinger, there's a scene where somebody is, you know, a gun goes off in a plane, somebody gets mm-hmm. sucked out of the plane. And I want to talk about that in particular, whether or not that is actually what would happen. But first of all, yeah, Kananga has what I think, again, is the greatest death in this entire franchise. <laughs> in that he's basically expanded and floats across the room like the lad out of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And it is daft. I feel really <laughs> sorry for Yafet Koto who had to act his way through that because I don't know how you do it. So we, we, we could probably agree that that would not happen. No. The idea of a compressed gas bullet, it's interesting. I can kind of see the logic. It would produce very devastating injuries. To use it as a shark in a shark repellent gun, I don't really understand the logic behind that because if you just destroy a shark, all of that scattered shark meat, that's just going to attract more sharks, surely. That's not very much of a deterrent. Also, if you're kind of trophy hunting sharks, which I hope people wouldn't be, wouldn't you want an intact shark at the end of it? And also, when Kananga swallows that compressed gas bullet, how on earth does it fire inside his stomach? What is his stomach acid doing to that thing that makes it explode? And in any case, you would not inflate the way you see on screen, but it makes just about enough sense. And the film goes so quickly at that point. I mean, we're in a hard burn from that point on to the very end. People just go along with it and we're just like, oh, yeah, okay." He floats up to the ceiling and explodes with, of course, no blood because this is a family film. So if I'm on a plane and a window goes out, am I going to get sucked out the window? Uh, Short answer, no. Slightly longer answer. If a gun goes off inside an aeroplane, I mean, that's not good news. Guns going off at all. The sort of guns that are wielded in the James Bond series, I imagine the bullets are designed to inflict as much injury on the person as possible, which means they're usually quite soft and they probably wouldn't go through the fuselage. So you're probably that whole line in Goldfinger about going through Bond and the fuselage. He's bluffing, basically, to not get shot by pussy galore. If you shot out a window, okay, that's slightly more probable. The windows inside an aeroplane are designed, they're very small, and they're designed deliberately small so that an adult human cannot fit, generally speaking, out of them. And even if you get kind of partially sucked out, you're going to be a very effective block once you get partway through that window. And that means you form a nice seal and the sudden change of pressure and all of the air rushing out of the airplanes, that's stopped and pressure will equalise, oxygen masks will fall from the ceiling, you know, the, the usual routine of the safety demonstration and you can land the plane safely. So the scenario that you see in Goldfinger, I imagine that Auric Goldfinger would plug that window very effectively. And he's a big lad, Goldfinger, as well. He's well upholstered for a villain. He eats well. Good on him. And I think he would effectively plug that window very nicely. And the rest of that scenario would not pan out the way we see it on screen. It's slightly different in Die Another Day because we're in the cockpit of the uh, airplane. And you have bigger windows there, obviously, because the pilot wants to see out, which is fair enough. And they are big enough to be sucked out of, as demonstrated in the film and they're even given a helping hand because sensibly some of them have put on their parachutes which get deployed before they've left the plane so they it just helps suck them out with this rush of air 
So it's almost a slight correction from the earlier film as to, yeah, we know that was a bit silly earlier, but this one is slightly more credible. Talking about the the softer a bullet is, the more damage it does, or within reason, of course. Mm. Um, Can you really be the best assassin in the world if you've got a golden gun that fires golden bullets? (laughs) Um, If it only... So he must be good. Although we get very few examples of how good Scaramanga is in The Man with the Golden Gun, he must be good because we're told that his gun only fires one shot. Now that seems a bit risky to me. You've got to make sure that uh, you get your target in one shot because you've got to get out of there. Using gold as a, a form of bullet, I mean, okay, it, uh, bullets have been made out of pretty much everything. Uh, gold seems to be an extravagance, completely in line with Bond villains, and that's fair enough. But gold as a particularly good metal for a bullet I don't think it has any particular advantages or disadvantages. In fact, in the film, I think they analysed the bullet and they established that actually it's been hardened with a few other metals. So it's much less likely to deform and create, it will create less damage to the body than if it was pure gold. So yeah, Scaramanga must be a fantastic shot. And one last question, and it's the inevitable one, sticking with gold. Um, <laughs> well, let's phrase it a different way. Why don't those lads you see outside the British Museum or whatever, all painted gold or silver, die? Can <laughs> the- you die if you're covered completely from head to toe in gold paint, like in the <laughs> James Bond film Goldfinger? Or indeed, um, in oil, in crude oil in the James Bond film Quantum of Solace? Uh, So again, the short answer is no, but it is slightly complicated. So in Goldfinger, this poor woman who's covered head to toe in gold paint, uh, the reason for her death is given that she dies of skin suffocation. That is just not a thing. Um, It's true that your skin can absorb some oxygen, but it's about 2%. The other 98% is being absorbed through your lungs. And losing 2% of your oxygen intake isn't going to make a huge difference to your health. However, if the gold paint that is applied to her covers her pores, so if all of the pores in her body are effectively sealed off, that means she can't sweat. And sweat is a very important way of regulating our body temperature because we are constantly generating heat inside our body and we radiate that out to maintain around about 37 degrees C in our core. If you can't radiate your heat, this excess heat, it means that the temperature will increase. And if your body temperature gets above about 40, 42 degrees C, your cells start to die off because we simply cannot function at that temperature. So if her body temperature raises above 42 degrees, especially um, around her head, her brain, she's in serious trouble. But bless them, there are some physicists who've done the calculations and they figure that she's probably got about six hours before she gets to that stage. That is plenty of time to wake up, feel a bit hot, take a cold shower and kind of manage that increase in body temperature. Also, Bond is knocked unconscious in the kitchen while this whole process is going on. And he doesn't apparently wake up for well over six hours, which I find 
you know, that's a serious head injury. He needs to get that sorted. So it's not feasible in the way it's presented in Goldfinger. And that's why anyone covered in paints, body paints, should be fine. Uh, You might want to be careful that you don't get too hot, but you should be fine. In Quantum of Solace, when uh, Strawberry Fields' real name is covered in crude oil, the explanation is not given. It's not skin suffocation. She is just plain suffocated because they also introduce oil into her lungs. So she effectively drowns. She All of her lungs are blocked so that she cannot absorb oxygen in the normal way. And so, again, it's almost like a correction for the earlier film. It's certainly an homage to the earlier film because the body is presented in the exact same way as is in Goldfinger. So I've been talking to Catherine Harkup. We've been talking about her new book, Super Spy Science, Science, Death and Tech in the World of James Bond which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.